judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Cheers. Cheers. Welcome back. Welcome back. Oh, yeah. That's how I start this, isn't it? <laughs> I think we, maybe we should start with cheers. We're always drinking. So. We are. But this time we're switching it up. We are not having our usual wine. No. Instead. We today. Yes. Tell tell everybody what we got. We've got, I don't even know what it's called. But it's, we talked about it on Jane Walker. Episode. It's Jane, because I want to say Lady Jane. And that's not right. It Every is time. Not. It's the Jane Walker. It's the Women's History Month edition of Johnny Walker. Like they're, it's not black label, but they do have a black label. Yes. Yes. It was a blend created by Emma Walker, no relation. Yeah. Dr. Emma Walker. That's right. Yes. So this is the second year they're doing it. They did it for 2008. 19 and i don't think they did it for 2020 what year I, are we in jesus christ exactly <laughs> it's all the same but it is the 22 2022 20, yes mm-hmm. the 2022 which was what? very hard to find and my lovely husband got it for us in the bronx so that was nice yes love it thanks theo cheers thanks, theo. so that's what we're enjoying today because we mm-hmm. figured you know we just talked about it last month in our women's history month episode we yeah. might as well celebrate and this is like very good. I feel like we're very like mad men, but like mad women because we just got it on the rocks. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I really, I loved that episode. Recording that episode, there mm-hmm. was so much history in it. I mean, it went by a lot faster than I expected, but yeah, we talked about so many things. We really did. That was a fun episode. I, we, we talked about women's pay, like the pay gap, mm-hmm. right? And... Shortly after that, we were on Twitter and we came across this Twitter bot Mm -hmm. that absolutely loved their premise. It was like Twitter bot for wage gaps or something. Well, for women's history on International Women's Day, every company that posted like, we love our ladies, this Twitter bot would like say, okay, this is what the pay gap is at this organization. Yeah. And it was, I mean... I did come across, I think, three that were equal Mm -hmm. over the course of the day when I was looking. But some of them were like over 40%. Yeah, I saw one that was like 45%. And I was just like, um, someone call like a lawyer because that doesn't seem okay. And this is literally why we need to be talking to each other Mm -hmm. about how much we make. Like... I just had like a very frank conversation with a coworker of mine who just got promoted and I was like very excited that she got promoted, but she was just like, this is what they offered me. This is what I countered with. And like, she told me everything. And I was just like, we're not supposed to be having these conversations, but it was like so refreshing and so nice. And like, she helped me out because like, I really like lowballed myself. Yeah. And it was such a good conversation to have. And it was like, oh, it just felt so nice to be like women supporting women. Like and I was very excited. It is totally illegal for them to prevent us from mm-hmm. talking to one another about how much we make. Mm-hmm. Follow Jorts the Cat on Twitter. He tells all about it. Jorts the Cat is my favorite account to follow. Jorts the Cat. Yeah. So did you see that thing? It was like it was from an Am I the Asshole account where, like, some lady was putting butter on a cat. 
Yes. <laughs> We've discussed this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So that's jorts. Okay. But because this am I the asshole went viral. Mm -hmm. Someone created a Twitter account for him. And basically all he does is tweet like pro union, pro worker (laughs) stuff all the time. Like he he celebrates like Starbucks that, um, that form unions Mm -hmm. at their different locations and so on. And, and he, you know, he's supposed to be like the dumb one. And then there's another cat named Gene, who's supposed to be the smart one. And he'll be like, Gene said, we're not, you know, we're, we're not allowed to prohibit people from talking about how much they make, like mm-hmm. being open and honest about this. That's how we break this pay gap. Yeah. Because if we know what everyone else around us is making, then they can't fuck us over. Exactly. I just wonder who was like, who was the first person who was like, don't, don't talk about it. A dude. <laughs> he was like, "Ugh, I don't want all these bitches to know that I get paid so much more than them. No one talk about it. And it's it's so ghost to talk about salary, and it's not. It's absolutely not. No, it's it's honestly crucial in mm-hmm. in some ways. So you know, I talked with a colleague of mine who we both applied for the same job, and he got it. And he talked to me about like the whole back and forth. And he's like, they expect you to negotiate with them. So don't just accept what they say right off the bat. Terrifying. Like I'm not that I can't haggle. Like I'm not that person. I'm just like, okay, cool. Thank you for even, you know, letting me do this. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know how in your field it would work, but I know in mine, like the way in which the interview process goes for professors is like, so a hundred people apply. Mm-hmm. They interview 10 from that pool of 10. They choose three for a second interview. And in that second interview round, those people present academic work. They mm-hmm. talk to different whatever. And from that, the full-time faculty chooses someone that they would like. And then they bring that to the hiring committee and the hiring committee puts that into consideration as they mm-hmm. choose a candidate. So they offer the job to the candidate. And yes, they have two backups, but they're not going to rescind mm. the offer to that person. That person is the one who will decide yes or no, this is worth it. Okay. So yeah. if they come back and they say 60000 mm. and the person comes back and says, no, 100000 they're like, we can't do 100000 but we could do seventy. Mm-hmm. And the person comes back and says, well, seventy is still a bit low, but I could do like eighty five. And you at the end of the day, it. they say, no, honestly, we truly can't go above 70 or 75. Mm-hmm. Then it's up to that person to say, okay, then I accept the 75 or I'm walking away. Do you think they lie about it? I I mean, I know they definitely try and lowball, but mm-hmm. I think because the negotiations are part of the, they're, they're part of the game. It's part of the dance. Yeah. yeah, the dance. Exactly. So, you know, and I just picked those numbers randomly. I don't, those are just to make nice round numbers. I don't mm-hmm. know anything about that. But for me, for instance, like it may be my first time getting that position, but I have, I have 12 years of college teaching yeah. experience and six years of high school teaching experience. Mm-hmm. So like I can put that into my argument saying like, well, I think it needs to be higher because of this experience and because I've done X, Y, and Z and this is what I can bring to your school. I get a lot of that uh, 
imposter syndrome. So I'm always like, I can't ask for too much because like, I don't know this and I don't know that. And it's like, you can learn literally anything. Mm -hmm. And I've been in like higher ed for the past like eight years. So like, yeah, like I shouldn't have imposter syndrome, but like that and anxiety makes it so that it's hard to like negotiate. But for my job, they first you have your call, your phone call with HR and they ask you like a bunch of questions just to make sure like you're sane. And then mm-hmm. they discuss like how much are you willing to accept and like what are you looking for? So they ask that right out the gate and then you go to like yeah, the next interview So you levels. do have to do your research into like what the ranges are. Mm-hmm. So I know because I work in a public institution like all the the pay scale is made public so i can look at that and say you know what i have this many years i know the entry income uh, the entry salary is this but because of my experience i think you should go to this point on the chart Mm -hmm. and you should pay me this much right yeah they want to they want to pay the least amount and you want to get the most amount and it's really hard to acknowledge that we deserve more there's a thing starting in New York. I don't know if it's everywhere, but in New York City, they're starting a New York City sal- salary transparency. So they're going to have to list the salary range within the job advertisement. That starts in like May. Okay. But that's awesome. Yeah. That's so good. I wonder why, like, I wonder how it started and how they got everybody on board to do it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that should be a given because if I apply for a job and I don't know approximately what you're going to pay me, like, Mm -hmm. why do I want to put all that effort into attempting to get this job for you to come back and tell me, like, I'm going to pay you less than you're already making? Like, yeah, not going to work for me. I know. It's impressive. I think it's a a good step in the uh, right direction. Absolutely. Transparency. Yeah. New York's doing it. So that wage gap will be diminished with transparency mm-hmm. absolutely so cheers to women's history month this is our first episode in april but Ooh. you know we just wrapped up women's history month yes. so cheers to that cheers to that you know what though every month is women's history month exactly and every month is black history month exactly because black history is what american history oh absolutely Speaking of Black History Month and Women's History Month, we have a wonderful black woman on our docket today. Yes. Today we're going to be discussing the one and only Anita Hill. We're going to talk about her family life, her schooling, and how she came to work in law. Then we'll dig into how she came to testify during the nomination of future Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and what the media and congressional leaders said about her during this time. So after we talk about, you know, her testifying, um, we're going to consider why Hill spoke up in the first place. Others who had gone through similar things with Thomas and the ways in which people would attempt to discredit her experience. And finally, we'll wrap up with Hill's legacy and how her experiences shaped those of other women who suffered from sexual harassment as well, including Christine Blasey Ford and many other women who came forward during the hashtag MeToo campaign. So just a trigger warning, there's going to be talk of sexual harassment, like, pretty aggressively. Anita Fay Hill was born July 30th, 1956 in Lone Tree, Oklahoma. Her parents, Irma and Albert, had 13 children. All right. That beats my grandmother. She only had 11. (laughs) My in-laws, or my mother-in-law's one of 12 it was that generation. Yeah. I think that was the that was like around the time where the infant mortality rate started dropping. 
So people used to have like 13 kids, but like half of them would die, Aww. right? No, I mean, it is sad, but like in yeah. the 50s, that's when, you know, you had your vaccines that were coming People started in. washing their hands, you know. <laughs> and all of this stuff that had all these kids staying alive. Mm-hmm. And of course, there still wasn't like uh, contraception that yeah. was widespread. Like it existed, but especially if you're Catholic, you don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's the youngest of the 13. Her parents were farmers who got married when they were just teenagers. I mean, in order to have enough time to have 13 kids, (laughs) you gotta be. (laughs) Hill's grandparents on both sides were enslaved. And her parents, though, were free. And they wanted to make sure that that meant something to their kids, that they recognized what that really meant to be free. Education, as well as religion, were both extremely important in the Hill household. Her parents set high moral standards for the family, and Anita was raised in the Baptist faith. Being honest, kind, and modest were the pillars of their faith. Hill and her siblings lived up to the education expectations set by their parents. Anita graduated as her class valedictorian from Morris High School in 1973. Following the footsteps of most of her siblings, she was on her way to college. Hill studied psychology at Oklahoma State University, where she graduated with honors in 1977. It was there at an internship with a local judge where she sparked her interest for law. I just think about that because, you know, my parents are around approximately around the same age. They were Mm -hmm. born a a year and three years later and just like how different their experiences were because my mother went and got an associate's degree, but she graduated high school at 16. So like Mm -hmm. an associate's degree was kind of like high school part two for her. And my father didn't get a degree. Um, You know, it was just thinking about the backgrounds that lead people to pursuing higher ed in like the 70s when their children born in the 50s and stuff. And Mm -hmm. what what gets them to that point? I don't know. I just I find it absolutely fascinating, like how someone's background can really play such a role in in their education. Yeah, like it seems like. College wasn't even a question. Like, of course you're going. Like, my mom got an associate's and then a job with the state, like, right right after she graduated. Mm-hmm. So she didn't think to pursue anything else because she needed this one thing. And then she was going to work for the state. And she worked for the state for, like, 50 years. So yeah, And, and nowadays, like, it's just expected yeah. that you go to college afterward. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like it's a paid version of how to get a job. Yeah, because like you need that, you need like a bachelor at least. Like now it's becoming like you need like a master's too, which mm-hmm. like I'm so like, glad that my I got dad out doesn't that. have a degree, but he couldn't, like someone who went through his experiences could never get the job he has now mm-hmm. today, right? Because back when he got the job, you could get it without a degree, but now yeah. they won't even look at you if you don't have a degree, which is bullshit because it of is. how much that costs. Yeah, exactly. And oh, okay, that's. Sorry, that's like a whole nother, we can, we can have a higher ed conversation oh, yeah. another time. Absolutely. Let's get back to Hill. All right. Well, after that, Hill set her sights on Yale University's School of Law. And in a class of 160 people, she was one of only 11 black students. That's weird. <laughs> like, that's just like, think about like the visual of that. Like, mm-hmm. how little bit of like people that actually is oh absolutely and then i'm guessing among those 11 students like how many of them were women oof right you know was probably she the like, only one like, or was there maybe one other or two that's others? something to i'm gonna look into that yeah. i wonder we need to know yeah i feel like it, what if she was like four 
forward six would make me feel better, but I really feel like she was like one of two. Like, oh yeah, I, I mean two. I feel like is probably being generous, unfortunately. Yeah. But Hill herself graduated with her Juris Doctorate and honors in 1980. Then Anita passed the District of Columbia Bar that same year and started working for a law firm in Washington D.C. This was called Wald, Harkrader, and Ross. She wasn't there very long because she was looking to pursue a career in civil rights law, specifically. In 1981, she landed a job doing just that at the Office for Civil Rights. Here she became an attorney advisor to Clarence Thomas, a fellow Yale law grad. Together, they reviewed cases of unlawful discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, disability, age, or sex in health and human services for the U.S. Department of Education. Ironic. Hmm. When Thomas was promoted to chairman of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or the EEOC, in 1982, Hill moved into the position alongside him, becoming his assistant. So Hill left the EEOC in 1983 to pursue teaching. She became an assistant professor at an evangelical Christian school of law in 1983. What does that look like? I don't know, but you know what? Law should look like one thing, and that's the law. Uh, I mean, I would just like to look at a syllabus because I wonder, I wonder, anyway. I mean, she's Anita Hill. I I trust her. I trust her, but I mean, she didn't stay there long. She ended up going to uh, the University of Oklahoma to work at their law school in 1986. There, she earned tenure by 1989. She was the first black woman to ever do so at the school. I mean, that's really fast in general, like... Even from 83, her first position as an assistant mm-hmm. professor, to earning tenure in 1989, yeah. that is, that's a, that's impressive. That's a good turnaround. Usually it takes people, I, I think it's seven years, mm. um, and that's often in one school. She was only in the University of Oklahoma College of Law for three, four years mm. by the time she got tenure, so well, that's yeah. amazing. I mean, she was thriving, she was killing it, she's loving her job, but... She gets a phone call, and that changed the trajectory of everything. In 1991, then-President George Bush nominated Hill's former boss, Clarence Thomas, to replace a retiring Thurgood Marshall as part of the Supreme Court. The process for vetting a person into this kind of position is a thorough one. First, the nominee is vetted by the FBI— Literally every person they've ever worked for, dated, or even been friends with is questioned. This can take months. Yeah. Then the Senate Judiciary Committee conducts its own investigation and hearings with the nominee. So they go over every ruling that they've ever issued. They ask personal questions, work-related questions. The goal is to make sure that this is a fair and honest person who has no bias, as they will be tasked with hearing and judging cases with large-scale outcomes for all Americans. So is that why um, Amy Coney Barrett's went so quickly because they going over every ruling she ever issued Didn't was she, like, zero really yeah <laughs> yeah what are the qualifications mm. just saying you know mm. she also like refused to answer a lot of things i do remember that she was just like oh i don't have like a comment on that at this moment and it's like this is the interview you need to have a comment. Listen, if she can get the job, we can get the job. Exactly. And we deserve the pay, too. <laughs> I'm sure she doesn't have any imposter syndrome, either. Ugh. Hill wasn't actually surprised by the call for a background check, but she was surprised by the timing. Clarence's confirmation hearing with the Senate Judiciary Committee was well underway at this point. 
According to the documentary Anita, Speaking Truth to Power, directed by Frida Mock, the call started with an ominous statement. We understand that you experienced sexual harassment at the hands of Clarence Thomas. Like, damn, what a phone call to get, right? Right. (laughs) This call was coming from a woman named Ricky Seidman, who at the time was working as an assistant to Senator Ted Kennedy and as chief investigator for the Senate Labor and Human Resources Committee, which is like basically HR for people trying to work in government. Mm -hmm. So it was basically Ricky's job to vet Clarence and bring in the info to the committee. In an interview that she did with PBS Frontline, Ms. Seidman states, As a part of what I was doing, I talked to a lot of people who had worked for Thomas, both at the EEOC and the Education Department. I had page after page of talking to people who had worked at the EOC who were very unhappy with how he had managed it. And then I heard about Anita Hill. I reached out to Anita. I spent some time because I was really interested in her sense of Thomas and what kind of justice he was going to be. And then I started talking to her about the issue of sexual harassment. And then I had been hearing that it came up. Ultimately, she was very reluctant initially to talk to me about her own experiences and said that she wanted to think about it. And then what she said at the time, and I'll never forget this for the rest of my life, which was, she said, in my experience at the EEOC, the victim becomes the villain. Foreshadowing. Indeed. Hill spoke to Seidman about her time there, but was adamant that she was not interested in making her allegations public. She felt like it was her civic duty to convey this man's character to the Senate, but she was only willing to do that privately. Hill goes on the record in a written statement. This confidential statement is submitted to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Within the statement, she speaks of being sexually harassed by Thomas 10 years earlier, from him repeatedly asking her out to discussing pornography and his own sexual activity. Hill discloses it all. The FBI reads it, then it's given to the committee, but it's labeled as an inconclusive report. The committee decided the matter was not worth pursuing. Her affidavit was simply abandoned. Two days before the Senate was expected to confirm Clarence Thomas, Hill's statement was leaked to reporters. Mm-hmm. This breach of confidence threw Hill into the spotlight, which she wasn't even looking for. And it also sparked a national debate. I think this is a really key point, too, because oh, yeah. so many people are like, oh, she just wanted this attention. Yeah. She just wanted that. She literally did not want this to not be at made all. public. Like, this was literally everything she was saying i don't want to come forward because i don't want this to happen and people were like don't worry it's not gonna happen and i was like boom my fears just came true now what mm-hmm. well now what the press flocks to hill's college campus looking for an interview reluctantly she holds a press conference to make a statement and answer as many questions at once basically she's looking to appease the media and be able to get back to teaching In the press conference, she speaks of the topic of sexual harassment as a sensitive, ugly, and unpleasant issue that people don't want to deal with. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in years, she was actually sitting down and dealing with it. So it's just like bringing, resurfacing all this trauma. She speaks about it. uh, Reliving it was really hard for her, and it seemed like it maybe was for nothing. The Senate didn't reach out to her or even seem to slow down in their process to get Clarence into office. Until a bunch of women's groups started to speak up to force the press to ask questions of the Senate. A group of female representatives marched over to the Senate. A Democratic representative from Colorado, Pat Schroeder, led the charge, demanding that the confirmation be stopped until a proper investigation could be done. The chairman committee, Joe Biden. Who's who's that? That name doesn't sound familiar at all. Mm, Yeah. No. Well, Joe Biden, at the time a senator. Mm -hmm 
subpoenaed Hill to testify, and that gave her about five days to gather a team and get to Washington. The room was filled with the committee, the press, and supporters on both sides. The whole process is usually confidential, like her statement was supposed to be, but Hill found herself basically on trial. Something, for those of you who might not be familiar with the Hill uh, testimony, I guess we'll call it, because it it certainly wasn't her trial, um, but it seemed like it. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to what we saw in 2018 with Christine Blasey Ford and the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and i think it's funny that you call it the the hill trial or hearings because it's like the scandal gets named after the wrong person all the time right like the the monocle wincy scandal like should it have been that no No. (laughs) but yeah the the scandal always gets named after the woman just saying yeah Thomas was allowed to make a statement first, which in which he denied any wrongdoing, of course. He referred to the investigations as a high-tech lynching. Ugh, Tom, Yeah, he cringe. made, like, I, I hate to say, like, he played the race card, but, like, in this case, he, like, absolutely did. Well, and it's really bizarre, too, because it's not like she was a white woman. Exactly. But he was trying to convince a bunch of white men of his innocence. So, mm-hmm. of course, he's going to go, I feel like... She was even maybe an afterthought, like he was defending himself to these men. Right. And by using the the phrasing of lynching, yeah. it's like, oh, no, we can't have that. Exactly. Yeah. Thomas got the first word in these hearings. So he was able to frame the entire hearing the way that he wanted, the way that benefited him by calling it a high tech lynching for uppity Negroes. So basically saying, I'm reaching to a level where people want to take me down and you white men don't let that happen. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That, that about sums it up. The committee was supposed to be neutral, but it had more than a few people who were looking to make Thomas the next Supreme Court pick. You know, they lost a black man. They need to replace him with a mm-hmm. black man. Kind of like when RBG died and they're like, oh, we have to replace her with a woman. Yeah, but let's replace her with a woman who actually like votes in favor of the law. Mm hmm. And doesn't just make up her own feelings on the law. I I think that there's a place for diversity, of course. Yes. But when you're just like replacing someone, it seems forced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this committee was clearly pissed about the delay. And so they just kind of wanted to push it through. So because of this, everything was a little bit rushed. Everything became a little bit hostile, including the questioning. So this all-white male committee aggressively questioned Hill on details on details on things that were said to her, mm-hmm. pushing her to be as graphic as Clarence was back then. Honestly, that whole, like, again, it's, it's making someone relive the, the trauma. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a tactic to get Hill to change her story. But, you know, just like we saw with Blasey Ford in 2018, she... She stuck by her story. It was very clear and consistent. You know, they wanted to catch her in a lie by Mm -hmm. asking the same thing over and over again. That's just about to say, like, usually your story doesn't change when it's the truth. Exactly. After explaining one particular interaction she had with Thomas about uh, pubic hair on a Coke can, Hill was asked to describe it once again. Literally, she had just said it. Mm -hmm. It was in her statement. Why does she need to say it again? Do you not understand, white men? Do you not understand? And don't tell me you don't, because that's a lie. So not only was it hard for Hell emotionally to have to describe these acts of harassment out loud, it was hard for America to hear it. 
So at that time, things were pretty modest. Like speaking of sex or pubic hair on national TV was just not done. It was improper, if you will. Some of the testimony took place over Saturday morning and there was a message to parents and kids saying that things are about to get a little bit crazy. You mean like they put something out like a disclaimer before the news started or like there was like a reporter who was like, Hey kids, you yeah. might, or hey parents, you might want your kids to like go out and yeah. play. Yeah, it was like, um, hey kids, this is usually your time to watch cartoons, but like there's something happening that like we need to discuss and like you might need to talk to your parents before like you go any further. Wow. Yeah. Honestly, I can, if I can find out, put it on because I saw it on YouTube and I was just like, oh damn. And then I remembered that things weren't as progressive. Like this stuff was really taboo. And it's like, oh, it was like the 90s. It was like the... You know, but it was very different. Yeah. Honestly, Hill's only goal was to explain her experiences and get out. She starts her testimony by speaking about her own history, her childhood, and how she came to work with Thomas. She spoke about the first incident of harassment, which was when Clarence asked her to go on a date after working together for three months. She also addressed how he spoke about pornographic films involving women having sex with animals and films showing group sex or rape scenes. He talked about pornographic materials depicting people with large penises and breasts. He spoke about his own sex life, bragging about pleasure he had given women. And he commented on her clothing, letting her know which outfits made her look more attractive to him or not. My face is so scrunched up in disgust. It like hurts. Yeah. It was hard to get through all of that yeah. because it's just everything wrong about yeah. these interactions. Like, it's like, who do you think you are exactly to be speaking to anyone this way? Yeah. Hill suffered through all of it. And he then had to relive it for the committee live on TV. Her parents and some of her siblings were allowed to sit in the front row for support. For me, it would have added a new level of stress to have to describe conversations about pubic hair in front of my mom, though. So I don't know. I think that helped her. But for me, I would have been out on that one. <laughs> Hell did all of it with such grace. She was asked all these questions to determine her motivation. Was she a scorned woman? Did she see herself as a martyr? Was she looking to be a hero in the civil rights movement? What? Yeah. How is yeah. that? No. Yeah. The answer to all of these questions were no. No. I mean, she literally did not want to come forward. Mm -hmm. She did what she had to say. Like, she wrote what she had to say. Mm -hmm. She said it. Now she's being, like, put on, basically put on trial. Mm -hmm. But that part of the narrative is not sexier attention getting that she didn't want to be there the idea is that this woman's just trying to take down this dude like how dare she she waited to the very last minute to come forward with this but like she didn't because she didn't even want to no no and the idea that a woman would go through all of this for like clout or some kind of comeuppance seems plausible to people but the idea that a man would discuss porn in the workplace and repeatedly ask out a woman he found attractive who had no interest that's the part that's hard to believe like make it make sense like it just it can't like how? no i mean obviously uh, you if someone pays you a compliment you need to have sex with them that's how it works right? i mean i am constantly exhausted because that's <laughs> what i do I get so many freaking compliments. <laughs> I can't even handle any of it anymore. 
No, but in all seriousness, like, you know, we're trying to make light of it just to not have this be such a depressing episode. Mm -hmm. But it really does make you question how did we, how, how are we ever at this point? Why men is the question that I have. I mean, fair enough. Now, Hill was allowed to bring witnesses with her. She had two men and two women who could attest to her character and her accounts of the time uh, with Thomas. These were former colleagues and friends who she spoke to about the harassment seven years earlier. They recounted conversations about Thomas's behavior. Now, a former colleague, Professor Joel Paul, testified about a conversation he had with Hill, stating, Professor Hill spoke with obvious emotion and embarrassment that she had been sexually harassed by her supervisor at the EEOC. Honestly, the fact that she has to be embarrassed by this, yeah. it, that's, that's the biggest red flag. Because that's another thing that sexual harassment does, right? Like, it makes you feel like, well, what am I doing to, like get these advances right like am i not being modest enough am i throwing myself at this person like you're embarrassed for how you behaved but it has nothing to do with the victim in this scenario absolutely hill wasn't comfortable speaking of the harassment she wasn't running around town looking to drag names through the mud before wrapping up her time at the hearing she took a lie detector test at the urge of the committee and guess what she passed wow i am so shocked <laughs> But all this went unnoticed, and just like that, the hearing was over on October 13th, 1991. The final outcome from Washington was that the truth was unknowable, leaving it as a he said, she said story that that meant nothing. It had no weight. But that's like the FBI saying, oh, we couldn't figure it out. Sorry. Like, your nation's greatest detectives just being like, I don't know. It's not a freaking X-File. It's... Yeah. <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> god damn. Helvin goes back to Oklahoma and she tries to get back to her normal life. Less than a week into this normalcy, the U.S. Senate confirms Clarence Thomas into the Supreme Court with a vote of 52 to 48. He's so, still there today. He's still there today, but like those numbers are very close. They are, but you know, when you think about the partisan division of um, the Senate, mm -hmm. it's not overly shocking. Sure. That normal life that Hill was looking for, I mean, it's kind of over for her. Even though Clarence won, right? He got what he wanted. Mm -hmm. She's vilified. People were still mad. And they started to seek revenge for what they saw as an attack on the justice system. <sighs> Conservative Oklahoma state legislators demanded Hill's resignation from the university. Because clearly, because she testified to mm -hmm. this, because she was a victim of sexual harassment, she's incapable of doing her job well they think she's a dirty rotten liar and doesn't deserve to be able to work yeah they even attempted to pass legislation to close down the law school Which, not like, just her yeah the whole how? school like that's such an overreach wow. such an overreach there were bomb threats that were called into the school uh pretty consistently mm. and there were even personal threats of violence that came from all over, from people on the street to letters and mysterious packages being dropped off at any address that Hill was associated with. So she put up with this for about five years. She tried Holy to maintain... No. Yeah, right? I'm sorry. Holy shit. Five years. Five years. Yeah. Just like going to work, going to like the coffee shop, having people like 
five Call you years. a lying bitch as you like go get your coffee every every day for five years just wow. dealing with like male that's not nice a lot of the times for five years that's it's insane so during during these five years the threats like they just kept on coming she was friendly with the university's president uh david boren but he was a member of the state senate and he actually voted in favor of justice thomas so he never really had her back after years of tension and the pressure, she resigned and moved from Oklahoma to Massachusetts and started a new chapter of her life. So let's circle back. We're going to talk about the attempts to discredit her. So there was a lawyer from the law firm that Hill worked at in 1980. He claimed that Hill had been urged to leave her position in 1981 due to unsatisfactory work during her six-month evaluation period. He actually wrote an affidavit saying, quote, I express my concerns and those of some of my partners that her work was not at the level of her peers, nor at the level we would expect from a lawyer with her credentials. I suggested to Anita Hill that it would be in her best interest to consider seeking employment elsewhere. So this was news to Hill. In her testimony, she states that leaving was never suggested to her in any way. This was a clear attempt to question Hill's credibility. Like, she looks like an incompetent liar who would resort to throwing a sexual harassment allegation around to cover up sucking at her job, right? Oh, yeah, totally. However, two other employees of the same law firm came forward to dispute the claims. One of them being Donald Green, who was the chairman of the law firm's Associates Development Committee, which oversaw performance evaluations. So Green maintained that Hill's evaluation was typical of many first-year associates and that her work was not considered unsatisfactory. She was not asked by the partnership to leave the firm, he states. Ms. Hill left the walled firm of her own volition, freely choosing an alternative professional path, which is not uncommon for young associates. I was aware of no pressure upon her to leave. I am confident that the walled firm did not ask or press her to leave. So the first lawyer, right? That guy who lied. Yeah. Do you know what happened to him? What? Nothing. He lied in a sworn affidavit. He just like went back to work. Ba, 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 ba. Just, just a big old liar. Of just got to go continue doing his job. You know, doctor lawyering for people. Just like nothing happened to him. Even though he lied. Nothing happened. Like I wish I were shocked right now. Yeah. But yeah. So speaking of nothing, I have another question for you. Okay. Do you know who Angela Wright is? Have you ever heard of her? Do you know about her? No. Nope. She was another woman with the same claims. So Wright also worked with Thomas at the EEOC, although not at the same time as Hill. She was also subpoenaed. She came to Washington for the hearings. She was interviewed and placed on the record. Wright says that she was fully prepared to testify, but she was never called. No, they, they already heard from one woman, so that was enough. And also, she, it, it's, it's good to note that she's also another black woman. So two of us in a room talking about something. God forbid. But she just sat in her lawyer's office waiting to be called. And they were just like, hey, these hearings are over now. So, like, we're just going to send you home. Is that cool? Yeah. You know, we already heard from one black woman. So, mm. like, that's all and we that need. that was already. Obviously, she speaks for everyone. 
Good God. In this case, she did because she also spoke to the fact that this guy was a creepy pervert. I mean, it's true, but at the same time, like just the fact that they wouldn't even listen to this other yeah. woman. No, I get right. it. It's it's fucked up. And another woman, Lillian McEwen, who was actually dating Thomas at the time when his alleged harassment of Hill and Wright is said to have occurred, also spoke up. Ew, though. Like, miss, date better. Uh, yeah, but you Thank know, you for speaking up, but also, ew. I bet she regrets that time. I'm sure she he does. seems like a really like lousy person we've all dated a terrible person oh, and God, if we that's were a whole nother podcast if we, we were to judge our if we were to judge ourselves on True. dating a bad person like right. you know lillian i apologize i'm glad that you stood up for yourself and could talk about what a jerk this guy was exactly well McEwen actually stated that thomas would often speak about the women from the office you know, I'm dating this guy and he's always talking about these other women. Cool, 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 cool. I date Clarence Thomas. <laughs> I think I dated Clarence Thomas. Uh, Carefully, you might listen. <laughs> I'll edit that out. <laughs> Don't worry. I listen. <laughs> he, can I get sued for saying that my ex is a fucking weirdo? No? no. Leave it in because maybe he does listen. He's a weirdo. He is. And like, you're right. You're you not naming names. So no, I'm not naming names, but like, you're right. Like you can't judge someone for who they dated because if so, may I cast the first stone on myself because I <laughs> dated such a weirdo for a long time and apologize for his weirdness. And then we broke up. People were like, yeah, he was really weird. And I was like, you should have told me, but you, you also how, thought he was weird. You know how hard it is to say something like that to someone who you think cares about. Like, mm -hmm. it's like, well, I, I don't it. know them as well. Maybe it's just me reading into it. But like, Sean never liked him. <laughs> and that's yeah. saying something. I got a really cool TV out of that relationship. There you go. So look at on the bright side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, anyway, this is not about me. So anyway, McEwen, in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, states he was always actively watching the women he worked with to see if they could be potential partners. It was a hobby of his. Ew. I mean, I'm hoping that she picked up on this and that was maybe what ended Why the relationship. Left, maybe. You know, because he was like, yeah, there's this girl at work. She's real cute. I think I might date her in a couple of months. Like, like, um, what, sir? Are we not together? That's just like, <laughs> I mean, he just he seems terrible. And that just like adds up like to his terribleness. Yeah. So there was also a misconception of um, Anita Hill's motivation, right? Mm -hmm. So during the hearing, it seemed like Hill was the one on trial. Right. Yeah. Most Americans just thought, here's this lady who sees a man who's about to have something great happen to his career and she hates him and wants to stop it. Yeah, because she's she's racist because he's a black man. Yeah. So we, black yeah. women are always trying to keep black men down. That's like a, a trope that some people subscribe to. Good that is Lord. not what I subscribe to. It's anyway. also not what usually it's also ever not happens. Exactly. <laughs> it's also like not true, but... Ugh. <laughs> so first off... Hill was the one who was sought after for information. She wasn't looking to make any money or even get her name printed in the papers. She never was looking to raise a legal claim about the sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. She just felt that it needed to be known once she was reached out to. It was her duty to report to the Senate. Right? It was her like governmental duty, right? Yeah. Like you have to like they're asking you for information. 
what kind of American would she be if she didn't say what she knew? I mean, she studies the law. She knows exactly. what is expected of her. Yeah. And that is to be truthful. If she is subpoenaed yeah. to present information or she is summoned to present information, mm-hmm. she does it. And she does it in a truthful manner. Yeah. But Hill's character actually became the center of the hearings. And that should never have been the case, Mm-mm. right? The goal was for people, or the committee anyway, to hear what kind of things this man had done and then make a decision whether or not to move him forward as a Supreme Court nominee. Yeah, like it wasn't, she wasn't the one standing in his way. She was providing information and they can take it or not take it. But all she had to do was provide the information. And that's what she did. Yeah, so why it came down to her solely makes no sense to me. There was also a question from a lot of people, a lot of reporters and some of the uh, senators who were on this committee. What even is sexual harassment? Oh, good Lord. Well, you know what? It's, I guess maybe it's hard to understand it if you've never experienced it. Mm-hmm. I, not that men can't experience sexual harassment, of but course. like, dude. So people like Arlen Specter, who was at the time a senator from Pennsylvania, seemed to interrogate Hill very harshly. His badgering showed that he didn't really understand how sexual harassment worked. I call bullshit. Don't tell me you don't understand how. Like, I, I, I mean, I get it. It was 1991. It mm-hmm. wasn't 2022. Yeah. But like, you're telling me you, you can't grasp the concept of sexual harassment. I, I just I don't buy it. Yeah, he, again, doesn't sound like a great person or someone who should be in a position to be making rules and laws and speaking on lots of people's behalf if he can't understand this. And it's not that there wasn't sexual harassment at this time. It's Obviously. just that there were cases where the cases were so rare. So there weren't solid examples of it. Right. But let's say like the cases were rare, mm-hmm. meaning that the women coming forward with those cases was rare, yeah. not the experience was rare. Exactly. And I think people didn't know to come forward. But it for this dude, not being able to understand how something works is not an excuse for being a terrible human being. And he was terrible to Hill. Yeah. He assumed Hill was a liar and was looking to gain something. Again, let's go back to the beginning where we said she never wanted to make this public. Yeah, the there was no place. legal claim that she was issuing. Like there wasn't a, and now I'm going to sue you for money. There was nothing of that. No, she was the one who was subpoenaed to come mm-hmm. and speak. So Spectre demanded to know why she didn't speak up earlier and why she stuck around after being harassed. But like, there are many reasons why this would have been the case. But he basically thought that her explanations during her testimony didn't really justify her situation, that that it was kind of, oh, she must have liked this treatment Mm -hmm. or she was lying about it happening in the first place. So let's answer some of Senator Spector's questions. So like, why did Anita stay? She kept working for Clarence even when he switched roles. If the harassment was so bad, why not quit? Yeah, why not? Why not just quit your mm-hmm. job, black woman, in a in a law firm? Yeah. So first off, it was it was the eighties, and there were very few cases of sexual harassment that had even been heard by judges. And the ones that did get there got pushed back. Judges were very resistant to trying them because they were really hard to prove without multiple witnesses. And if anyone knew how the law worked and didn't work for some people, that would have been a young Anita Hill. Exactly. She knew that filing a complaint would have gotten her nothing but possible unemployment. Being out of a job was a real risk factor, especially in the 80s. 
it would have been more likely for her to be fired if she came forward with these claims because that would have been the easiest solution to whoever was in charge. Like, oh, oh let's just get rid of her. And get rid of the problem. Exactly. That mm-hmm. would have been the quickest and solution. Obvi- obviously, the problem is the woman who speaks up. Exactly. And being fired would have been the base level of messed up here. But she would also have to face retaliation, blackballing. To get a stain on her reputation would have been the end of a career that was just starting. But please remember, she was around like 25 at this time. Wow. You know, and making a complaint could prevent women from achieving their career goals, especially when the harassers held higher positions within the company. You can't like if you're if the only people above you are men Mm -hmm. and they're not going to believe the situation, then like where do you go? Where where do you go from there? Right. So many women were just joining the workforce and couldn't or wouldn't take that risk Hmm. of losing their one chance at employment. And I think it's important to note that like, Some people just love their work. Hill loved her job. She loved being able to make a difference. She was working at this office and she had a chance to work on issues of discrimination and be a part of making a real change for the American workforce. Why would she give that up for some dude who's being a dick to her? Exactly. Why should she be the one to walk away? And another reason was that she really did work hard to get where she was. Mm All those years of school, the time spent making connections, all this would just be gone if she were to speak up and say something because she would be the one penalized. She might literally have to start over. And for a black woman at that time, that might have been next to impossible. Yeah. During the hearings, one of her professor colleagues said, if someone had asked me a few weeks ago, I could say that I could imagine Professor Hill coming before this committee in a very different capacity as a judicial nominee herself. But I think her opportunity for that has now been destroyed. I think she paid a big price. Yeah, her name was tarnished. She had nothing to gain and everything to lose at that point. During the hearing, a senator actually asked her, do you think your reputation from your standpoint could ever be fully restored? Her answer was, no, not in the minds of many. It will not be. So let's talk about her legacy, you know, not just for herself, but for the world. Mm-hmm. She started an American conversation, if you will. Americans became the jury in the hearings and the perception of it was split. There were people who had experienced or witnessed similar things and could understand. And there were also people who saw this as an attempt by a black woman to stop the accomplishments of a black man. Hill was seemingly coming out of the woodwork and might have even been paid to destroy Clarence's credibility. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This divide brought conversation and change. There were people speaking of things that had happened to them while others were learning that they were a part of the problem. Hill's testimony had special significance. It was the first time a woman had publicly shared such a descriptive account of workplace harassment. It wasn't at all the first case of it, but something that so many of the women at the time experienced on their own. Hill speaking out served as an example and a warning to those who didn't understand the ideas of sexual harassment. For some, it was just a boys will be boys behavior and mentality, right? Mm -hmm. Some women didn't have the words for what they were dealing with. Hill gave them words. And more importantly, she gave them permission to discuss those stories. And discuss them they did. Women were now realizing the harassment they were subjected to was wrong and that they could take action and they refused to stand for it any longer. In the decades following the hearings, people started telling their stories and started filing complaints. 
the impact of Hill's bravery can be seen in the Me Too movement. People started listening more and judging women less. Less by the standards of Hill's original testimony. Not less by the perfect world we're looking to achieve. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> but the way she was interrogated in 1991 was terrible and embarrassing. The questions that she had to endure would never be asked today. We saw a bit more compassion for Christine Blasey Ford, who testified against Justice Kavanaugh. A similar case and a similar outcome. Unfortunately. And definitely a future episode. Mm -hmm. After all of this, Hill went on to become a professor at Brandeis University in Massachusetts, where she now lives with her partner. She does talks and writes about her experience with sexual harassment, and she has become a vessel to tell your story to. In the documentary, it's a really, really sweet part. She takes the film crew down to her basement where she has all these file cabinets, just like six or seven file cabinets filled with letters. Mm -hmm. People who wrote to her back then to express their support, people writing to say, I've been in your shoes, and even men who were writing to express regret for not standing up sooner. She's changed minds and laws. Claims of sexual harassment filed with the EEOC shot up after the hearing. And Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1991, which gave victims of workplace sexual harassment more legal recourse. State laws began to change as well, and anti-sexual harassment programs became the norm in offices across the country. Businesses even started to develop workshops to combat harassment. You know, there's like cheesy videos about harassment in the workplace you have to sit through and you think, who would say this? Why would someone do this? Someone did. And because of Anita Hill's bravery, protections were put into place. So for that, we thank her. Final thoughts, takeaways. What what do we get from all of this? Well, I think like it's right that we thank her because I definitely grew up knowing that behavior in the workplace mattered. I grew up knowing that there was a way of behaving that should not be allowed. And I think it's because of Anita Hill. It's because of what she endured. She stood up in her truth and it would have been much easier to say and do nothing. Her life was so changed. And I think she's a really beautiful example of how having a voice actually makes a difference. Absolutely. You know, we've come a long way, but we're not there yet. And that's my biggest takeaway. Yes, the sympathies for Ford were much higher than they were for Hill, but she was still drilled with questions and required to relive her trauma for the world to see. And as Tarana Burke's Me Too movement has shown us, harassment against women, especially women of color, is still disgustingly prevalent. We have to keep bringing attention to it when it happens, and we have to support the women who come forward. Mm -hmm. The distrust of women who come forward with sexual harassment allegations is really what perpetuates this disgusting behavior. So, as per usual, let's share a few resources with you, things that we use as part of our research here, and that if you want to know more about Anita Hill and her story, you can turn to. How History Changed Anita Hill by Gina Moon for The New York Times. Hill's autobiography, Speaking Truth to Power. Anita, Speaking Truth into Power, directed by Frida Mock on, and that one's on Amazon Prime. Confirmation, starring Kerry Washington on HBO Max. Frontline on PBS uh, is an independent journalist news show and website. They have super insightful interviews with all the key players here. So Anita, Angela Wright, Ricky Seidman, Nina Tottenberg, who was a journalist who covered the hearings at the time. They're all on there on the website. That's a, that's a good number of sources to get you started, but there's so much more and you can share other information you know about her with us. 
Let us know what you thought about this episode. Do you have any suggestions for women we should cover? Any stories you'd like to share with us or similar experiences? Yeah, hopefully you didn't go through anything similar to what Hill did. But, you know. If you did and you want to talk about it, we're here. Exactly. And you can reach out to us by email at bigreputationspod at gmail.com. And we also encourage you to follow us on Twitter at BigRepPod and Instagram and TikTok at BigReputationsPod. Engagement there really lets us know you're listening. So, you know, just give us a a little like or a little hello Mm -hmm. on one of our posts and that'll make us happy. Make us smile. Yeah. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever or wherever you get your podcast. Share us with your friends, your family, your 13 siblings, nine judges, wherever. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. And be sure to pick up some Big Reputations merch. The link to Redbubble is in the show notes. Check it out and send us a pic of whatever you get. We love to see it. Shout out to the person who uh, goes all in with the shower curtain. If you get a shower curtain, I will buy you uh, a shower steamer like kit. So you can have an awesome shower with our faces. (laughs) And you can have fun explaining that to your family. Yeah. You you don't have to explain anything to your family. Your purchase is your purchase. (laughs) All right. Let's wrap up this episode for tonight. What, What words do you have for us this week, Kim? So I have a quote from Anita Hill. Despite the high costs which may be involved, it is worth having the truth emerged. Absolutely. And as always, believe women. (laughs) 